Asymmetrical Haircuts Justice Update with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Janet. Well, if you, like us, have been hanging out on Twitter, uh, you might have noticed some heavy exchanges on Ukraine-Russia international law. Yeah, there's even some hair-tearing and existentialist angst on people's lives work and whether international law actually exists. Oh, well, we actually believe that it does, obviously, otherwise we wouldn't be doing this podcast. But uh, with the war going on, I saw one international law professor posting, you know it's a really bad moment when international law Twitter shifts from jus, I'm not sure how to say it, jus ad bellum to jus in bello. Yeah, getting the Latin out there is when you know it's pretty bad. We asked ourselves um, which bits of international law might actually apply. Um, and, you know, let's be clear what's actually in dispute here. So to help us out, we have Juliet McIntyre, who's a law lecturer at the University of South Australia. Hi, Juliet. Hi. And Juliet, we'll uh, introduce you formally again a bit later. But first, let's start with some background. We're recording uh, Hague time, uh, Friday 25th in, of February in the mornings. And of course, things may change. Already the script changed multiple times. So, Stephanie, what's been going on? Well, after first a speech by Russian leader Vladimir Putin saying that he recognized the breakaway regions of eastern Ukraine, uh, the ones already occupied by pro-Russian forces, he said they are now independent. And then uh, a day or two days later, he moved on to a full-blown invasion against all of Ukraine on Wednesday night. Let's just stick for a moment with the shock of that Putin claim that Russia was actually allowed to interfere in order to protect the rights of people, Russian speakers in those regions, and that basically Ukraine itself had no right to exist. The best response we saw to this was from Kenyan ambassador to the UN, Martin Kimani, who told the UN Security Council that empires really aren't that hip, um, based in his history in the African continent, and that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin's rejection of diplomacy in favour of military force put the international norm of multilateralism on its deathbed. Here's the Kenyan ambassador. We believe that all states formed from empires that have collapsed or retreated have many peoples in them yearning for integration with peoples in neighbouring states. This is normal and understandable. After all, who does not want to be joined to their brethren and to make common purpose with them? However, Kenya rejects such a yearning from being pursued by force. We must complete our recovery from the embers of dead empires in a way that does not plunge us back into new forms of domination and oppression. We rejected irredentism and expansionism on any basis, including racial, ethnic, religious, or cultural factors. We, reg we reject it again today. Kenya registers its strong concern and opposition to the recognition of Donetsk and Luhansk as independent states. We further strongly condemn the trend in the last few decades of powerful states including members of this Security Council, breaching international law with little regard. Multilateralism lies on its deathbed tonight. It has been assaulted today as it, as it has been by other powerful states in the recent past. 
So we played that full quote because it was really felt like all over the world, people were asking what's right and what's wrong. And it wasn't just a global north reaction. So let's uh, catch up now to uh, more recent times. Uh, God, it's going so fast, isn't it? So Thursday, after the invasion started, we then got the sort of bit more precision from Russia, saying that its attack on Ukraine was actually intended to, quote, protect people who've been subjected to bullying and genocide for the past eight years. And for this, we will strive for the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine, end quote, suggesting that somehow this is a lawful humanitarian intervention by Russia into Ukraine. And of course, we have lots of strands and lots of people weighed in on this. Uh, but to work through the jumble of arguments, then we're going to have a lot of terminology uh, and we need an actual pro to unravel all of this for us. So we have invited Juliet. She's a lecturer in law uh, at the University of South Australia and she's a PhD candidate in the Melbourne Law School. Um, so with you looking back to earlier this week, what does international law say about countries that break off and want to be independent or join another country? Yeah, it, it's a really um, interesting idea that's been raised, this notion that the territories in the Donbass have, have potentially a right to, to break away. Um, and people listening may have heard of the term self-determination and they might be thinking, well, doesn't that apply here? So there's no right for a country to just break off and become independent. I mean, you can imagine the chaos that would ensue if that was so. Um, but I will come back to this point about secession in a moment. But what there is in international law is this right of self-determination. And this is a right that's granted to a people. So Article 1, Paragraph 2 of the UN Charter, right at the start, states that it's one of the purposes of the UN to develop friendly relations among nations based on respect for the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples. But this is only the start, and the UN Charter doesn't supply an answer to the question of who constitutes a people, and it doesn't say anything else about what actually is the content of this idea of self-determination. So you need to do a couple of things. You need to identify the holder of a potential right of self-determination. You need to answer that question, you know, who are the people that we are talking about? And this isn't easy. I mean, you look at things like history or racial or ethnic identity, shared language, and so on and so forth. Um, and once you've done that, you then have to ask, well, how is their right of self-determination being exercised? Because the default rule is internal self-determination, which is essentially the protection of minority rights within a state. So in this context, within the state of Ukraine for Russian-speaking minorities, if and that's a big if they were to be determined to constitute a peoples. Um, but as long as the state provides the minority group with the ability to speak their language, practice their culture in a meaningful way, effectively participate in the political community or even certain levels of self-governance, then that group is said to have internal self-determination. So self-determination within the borders of the state that already exists. So taking the Donbass region again, there's no particular evidence to suggest that Russian speakers, even if they constitute a separate people, were denied this opportunity to effectively participate, speak their language and so on and so forth. So that's internal self-determination. That's the fallback position for international law and international law sort of says, well, look, if you've got that, you're fine. Stay where you are. 
can I ju just to ask you with that, with uh, external self-determination, are there some examples? Yeah, absolutely. So um, a really interesting example, of course, arises during the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. Um, you know, you've got uh, the Badinter Commission holding that the principle of self-determination applies, but also that another principle applies called UT Possidatus Juris. And so this principle states that the boundaries of existing territories are not to be disturbed. So the Serbian population in the Yugoslav context wasn't able to demand alteration of the frontiers for Bosnia-Herzegovina, Croatia and Serbia. Um, but there's the one obvious exception, which I'm sure you can guess, which is Kosovo. So I was immediately reminded of Kosovo because there is that ICJ advisory ruling on whether they could declare independence. And then there was a kind of a rather vague decision that it wasn't against international law to declare independence, but the ICJ really didn't didn't engage with it on a very high level, I felt. But maybe you, who knows the nitty-gritty, uh, uh, knows more about it. But I remember seeing that and thinking, well, they really didn't say anything. They just made a decision that didn't really upset anybody except, obviously, the Serbs. Yeah, well, it's interesting. The ICJ was hampered a little bit by the manner of the question that it was asked by the General Assembly in that case. Because the question was very limited to, is it unlawful to declare independence? And James Crawford, um, who was one of the counsel appearing in that case, sort of famously got up and declared the independence of South Australia. And he said, I haven't done anything wrong. This is a completely ineffectual statement. International law doesn't care one way or the other. So that case was really only limited to that issue. Is it unlawful to you know, write a declaration in red ink with lots of signatures and, uh, and declare your independence? And the court said, well, no, you can go ahead and do that. The question is whether or not that's going to be effective. And that's the question that the court very much did not answer. And the Kosovo is a bit of a tough case. It's the quintessential tough case when it comes to secession. But if we take as a given that secession isn't absolutely prohibited by international law, it's just very much the not preferred option, then the case of Kosovo presents a set of facts that you know were persuasive. So there was a distinct ethnic group within a region with historically defined boundaries in the province of Kosovo, even though it wasn't, wasn't considered a state. There was serious uh, humanitarian disaster going on within that state, which gave rise to this idea of you know, the extreme circumstances that are sometimes required for external self-determination. And, of course, there had been lengthy negotiations with the predecessor state in an attempt to create uh, a new state of Kosovo, and they'd led to a complete deadlock which then resulted in this attempt to uh, seek independence via a declaration. So Kosovo is a great example of this idea of external self-determination having to jump over lots and lots of hurdles, you know, quite serious hurdles before it is effective. And so getting back to this question of the Donbass region, not only do the, uh, the Russian-speaking uh, peoples within that region probably have sufficient internal self-determination, it's really unlikely that they meet the criteria for external self-determination. So Russia's attempts to recognise uh, the Luhansk and Donetsk as independent people's republics is, is sort of this entirely false construct, you know, that has, that has been created. There's really no basis in international law for those regions to secede from the Ukraine, the territory of the Ukraine. Okay, we're going to throw in another huge concept that I've seen banded around, which is this whole responsibility to, to protect movement, the idea that you can 
go into another country because some bad stuff is happening. I don't know whether you would say that it's got a huge um, sort of movement behind it or not, but when we hear that coming out and that being an argument that's being put in relation to what's going on here, how do you see responsibility to protect? Yeah, responsibility to protect for me is one of those really troublesome ideas that sounds kind of great, but in reality can actually be used as a cover for unlawful interventions and and territorial expansion. I was going to guess that you were going to say that. You're a law professor (laughs) or a law lecturer and you'd you'd be saying, oh, you know, be careful of that one. Exactly. You know, in a utopian world, um, and I think there was a sense in the 90s, especially after, you know, the, the, the terrible genocide in Rwanda, there was this sense that we, the West, should have done something, you know, should have, should have gone in, should have prevented it somehow. Um, and I think there was this kind of moral guilt that was in existence that led to these ideas being bandied around. Well, you know, maybe there is this kind of obligation, uh, you know, in the interests of humanity to, to protect individual humans who are at risk of great suffering because of course the the general baseline principle in international law is non-intervention you know you can't go around butting into what other states are doing within their own territory to their own people but in terms of the legality of the responsibility protect it's not really it, it, it doesn't really you know cross the line either since 1945 only two states the UK and Belgium have ever explicitly invoked the doctrine of humanitarian intervention as a ground for the use of force. Although I guess we can add potentially add Russia to that list now as well. The UK did so in respect of the first Iraq war and during the NATO intervention in Kosovo in 1999. And then most recently during the airstrikes in Syria in 2018 that were a response to the chemical weapons use. So the UK has certainly relied on that doctrine to justify its actions, but other states don't. So um, taking Syria as an example again, Uh, The US and France were also engaged in airstrikes, but they didn't use responsibility to protect or humanitarian intervention as a justification. They said it was deterrence against the future use of chemical weapons. So it's not an accepted doctrine of international law, but it does have a bit of high-level endorsement. The UN General Assembly in 2005, in a document called the World Summit Outcome, said that the international community does have an obligation to protect populations from genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity. But, there's a big but, and the proviso is that in the World Summit Outcome document, it says that this protection has to be in accordance with chapters 6 and 7 of the UN Charter. In other words, action is only permissible through the Security Council and not unilaterally on the part of states. So in a way, it didn't really add anything to what was already in existence in international law. So, you know, can Russia of its own accord invade another country to protect the people of that country, as Putin has suggested is one of the bases, ever-changing seemingly bases of his, of his uh, invasion? And the answer is no, absolutely not. There is no legal basis for that. I would say one more thing about this as well, which is that there is this line that comes, sometimes gets thrown around when it comes to humanitarian intervention. I think, I think it was Tom Frank who came up with it. And it's this saying that intervention may be technically illegal, but morally legitimate. That's often brought out in respect of, you know, the action in Syria, the action in Kosovo. I think in this case, uh, I mean, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm a lawyer. It's not my job to make moral judgments. It's my job to make legal judgments and tell people what is and is not the law. And I would be telling people, no, it's not the law. But I think in respect of Russia, we can pretty clearly say that actually the even the moral justification isn't actually there. This narrative that Persian has created about there being genocide 
in the Donbass against Russian-speaking um, people has no evidence whatsoever. So I think there is neither a moral nor a legal justification for this action. So if you look at very simply, we have this, could they intervene, could they cede, uh, you know, is that lawful? But on the other hand, you have international laws. This is an invasion that obviously you don't mess with other countries' borders. That is the uh, baseline in international law. And now that also comes with things if you have an invasion. Um, Human Rights Watch now says that Russia is an occupying force and thus bound to the Fourth Geneva Convention to add another bit of international humanitarian law. How would you go about enforcing that? Uh, you know, I, I remember uh, the there another ICJ ruling with the Israel wall where they ruled that Israel was an occupying force and they should do all these things. And obviously Israel is not, not heeding that, that ruling, uh, can we say, uh, in the Palestine territory. So, uh, you know, how would you, even if you, you uh, established that they should be doing this, how would you hold them to it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of these debates in international law do sometimes come back to, you know, it's not a question of what the law is. The law is clear, but it's a question of enforcement. And when it comes to the Geneva Conventions, um, this harks back to the tweet that you mentioned at the start. We've moved from the use ad bellum to the use in bellow, and, you know, we're sort of in the bad place now. The laws of war have been around for a long time, and they're very clear, you know, protection of civilians, um, proportionate action, and so on. But how you actually enforce those in the midst of, conflict is one of those absolutely uh, incredibly difficult issues. You know, you have to sort of gather evidence of breaches. You have to be able to record this. I mean, certainly social media seems to be helping in terms of recording acts that are occurring on the ground, you know, in, the, in a live, um, which is quite, it's, it's kind of a new thing to see this live recording of, of, of atrocities occurring. We saw it with the Israel um, bombing of, of Palestine last year as well. But just getting back to the sort of legal issues, I think it's a little bit premature to call Russia an occupying force in respect of greater Ukraine. I mean, it's only been a couple of days. They're certainly occupying Crimea and, you know, quite openly and covertly in Donbass. They've been, you know, operating in that region for, for some time. There's no question that international humanitarian law and the Geneva Conventions apply to this armed conflict and that they should be regulating the conduct of the armed forces. But how you how you enforce that it's really down to the military commanders and their their manuals their legal manuals for the conduct of war that they have you know these big red books and it's you know we're reliant on them having the the proper training and making the proper decisions and then if they don't afterwards it becomes a question of criminal enforcement for uh, war crimes so any breach of international humanitarian law that's done in a way which is either intentional or deliberate or reckless is a war crime and can be prosecuted as such. And you mentioned the ICJ wall opinion, which is also really interesting. So in that opinion, the ICJ said Israel is an occupying force, it's obliged to uphold international humanitarian law, but it's also obliged to uphold international human rights law, and that these two regimes sit side by side. And that's quite interesting in respect of this dispute, because of course, Russia and Ukraine are members of the Council of Europe have responsibilities under the European Convention of Human Rights. So it is possible that an application could be made to the European Court of Human Rights regarding certain human rights violations that might take place during the conflict as well. But there's a bit of an asterisk on that because there's rumours going around that Russia might get kicked out of the Council of Europe. You heard it here first, folks. You know, that would have the ironic effect of denying people access to the court to enforce, you know, enforce their rights. So it's one of those kind of tricky 
political situations where often the individual suffers. Would, th- would that also mean if they get kicked out, would that also stop ongoing cases? Because there is already a European Court of Human Rights case w- involving Russia and Ukraine over Crimea and Russia's actions in the eastern Ukraine that is it's ongoing. So would it then automatically be thrown out or do they kind of finish it? Is it more like the ICC that, that you can leave, but, but, the court, but the case is still ongoing? Yes, I think the, I, I'm not an I'm not an EU lawyer, so I'm not completely you know in depth au fait with all of the uh, procedural nuances of that court. But my legal instinct is that it would have no effect on cases that were currently before the court. The court's already been vested with jurisdiction, and the fact that Russia might get kicked out of the the council doesn't affect cases that are already on foot. That would be the usual kind of approach. I just wanted to do a quick shout out to a podcast that we did, which you know went into this court that I really didn't know a lot about, but now I know a lot more about because uh, you and Molly made me find out about it. Uh, So if anybody wants to know a bit more about it, listen to a past podcast. Just before we we headed off into that human rights uh, side of things, we were also talking about war crimes. And I just wanted to um, have another chance to play another bit of of audio that has been uh, doing the rounds. This is from the uh, Ukrainian ambassador to the United Nations, Sergei Kislitsia, I think you say his name, and he was speaking at the Security Council just after the invasion started and made a very strong reference to war crimes. He was holding up his smartphone and telling his Russian counterpart to stop the invasion right here and there by making a call. Call Putin, call Lavrov to stop aggression. And I welcome the decision of some members of this council to meet as soon as possible to consider the necessary decision that would condemn the aggression that you launch on my people. There is no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell, Ambassador. So really strong stuff from him on alleged war crimes. And I want to circle back to war crimes again. I mean, that's our bread and butter. Can I ask you to put that on hold for a moment, Juliet, while we just welcome in a special guest who's uh, Astrid Reisinger Corosini has just managed to join us. As you can hear, this is a pretty breathless podcast where we're just adding stuff in. Hi, Astrid. Hello, everybody. Astrid, who's a friend of the podcast, is director of the Salzburg Law School. Before we go back to the issues of war crimes, proportionality, etc. So, Juliet, thank you. We'll come back to you in a moment. Astrid has been really trying to think through some of the uh, issues on aggression, despite the fact that she's in the middle of working on an investment arbitration. So she's going to give us a few minutes of her time to talk through the aggression issues here. Should we start off with uh, just some basic understanding? The idea of aggression, is this something we've been speaking previously about the ICJ, the International Court of Justice? Can the ICJ take up issues of aggression and actually you know, take some kind of ruling or a stand or a case on this? And how would it do it? Yes, absolutely. So when we talk about international criminal law in general, we always have this double nature of norms that on the one hand side, we're talking about individual criminal responsibility. But at the same time, we're also talking about acts that when they can be attributed to a state, they also raise potentially um, state responsibility. So if we 
start looking at the part of state responsibility, of course, we would have uh, the International Court of Justice, um, but also other fora. Um, there are currently quite a number of state-to-state -state disputes before the European Court of Human Rights, for instance, and I think you ha um, had a session on that uh, in, in, in the podcast, which I enjoyed um, uh, to quite some extent. Um, so these are questions in disputes between states that would be that would come before an international court, for instance, the International Court of Justice, if uh, there's uh, if it is satisfied that uh, there's jurisdiction in the case. So what does the ICJ need for jurisdiction in this case? Because I know Russia has not signed the kind of default accepting of jurisdiction and neither has Ukraine, so it has to be through a treaty. The other case we've seen involving Ukraine and Russia at the ICJ is going through the anti-discrimination treaty, CERD, and the Treaty on Financing of Terrorism. They both are signatories to the Genocide Convention. But We're getting course... a lot of nods the other end of uh, of these, uh, this call. Astrid, I know, you know run it yes, run through no, absolutely. with Stephanie. So if you don't have a general acceptance of jurisdiction, you would need to go through a number of treaties that were accepted among uh, parties. In this case, we're interested in particular between, uh, in treaties between Ukraine and, and, and the Russian Federation. So there could be different topics that kind of play into the overall conflict that could then serve as a basis for jurisdiction before the International Court of Justice. That does not mean that then all of a sudden, magically, the International Court of Justice uh, would be able to, to solve all the conflicts or speak about all aspects of the conflicts, but it's a way in. Um, and then the question is in how far the violation of the prohibition of the use of force also plays a role within this other topic that is covered by the bilateral treaty, for instance. Yeah, I remember in that ICJ case for Russia-Ukraine, when we had the uh, preliminary measures and the, and the objections, uh, Russia made a very strong case that this is not about these violations of uh, discrimination or, or financing of terrorism, but this was a way to talk about the annexation of Crimea and whether it was legal and ask the court to throw it out because it was kind of brought under false pretenses, uh, which they didn't. So I guess the court didn't buy that entirely. But of course, it's the ICJ, so it takes years and years, and we haven't heard the case on the merits yet and probably won't until next year because at the end of this year, they're still putting in their responses to applications I saw on the calendar of the court. Can I turn from the ICJ to just a quick question on what I've seen emerging is some questions around universal jurisdiction on aggression. The idea, to put it in very simple terms, that one state can prosecute individuals from another state over aggression. I saw somebody commenting that the Netherlands does have this in its laws. Yes, it does. But the Netherlands universal jurisdiction laws also have that they have to have a nexus. So you have to have victims or, or perpetrators here. And, and then there is head of state immunity. And the idea that how soon is, is Putin going to be taking a vacation to the Netherlands, my guess would be never. Yeah. But so uh, Astrid, how would you summarize whether this is something that is a useful concept for me, us to let me explore. Take a step back because I was talking about the double nature of international criminal law norms. So we touched upon the state responsibility part. And now on the other side, we have individual criminal responsibility for violation of international law, including the violation or qualified violations of the prohibition of the, of the use of force. So we have a crime. We call it a crime of aggression today. It used to be crimes against peace. 
which is a crime under international law. It needs to be enforced somewhere. We do have international courts that may enforce the crime. The international criminal justice system with the International Criminal Court um, at its top, but uh, we are all aware that the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court with regard to the crime of aggression is unfortunately very limited. So we could try to look at uh, the national level with the idea that national courts also have the possibility to enforce international criminal law. And in fact, we do have a number of states that have national provisions on the crime of aggression. And that includes of interest in the current conflict, Russian Federation, it includes Ukraine, it also includes uh, Belarus. So we do have uh, different grounds for the exercise of jurisdiction, could be territorial jurisdiction, active personality principles, or if the perpetrator is uh, the national of a certain state, or also under certain circumstances, passive personality, if the victims have the nationality of a state that has such a provision on the crime of aggression. And in addition, we do have a number of states that also provide for universal jurisdiction for the crime of aggression. So the general definition, if we can talk about the definition because it's a non-definition, whenever we do not have a link to a certain crime, then the doctrine of universal jurisdiction could come into play. You mentioned the Netherlands. I have in the back of my mind Croatia, Bulgaria, I do believe also Luxembourg, Austria. They have norms. They don't always call it universal jurisdiction. They add conditions, as for instance in the Netherlands, that you need, for instance, a person to be present on the territory for exercising jurisdiction. So there are certain uh, conditions attached to it. To my knowledge, the only unconditional universal jurisdiction clause with regard to the crime of aggression I know is the one of Samoa. So <laughs> certain people should maybe not um, plan their holidays in Samoa. And also Moldova has a rather broad understanding of uh, universal jurisdiction, which would only include that the person has uh, previously been um, indicted and, and convicted for the crime. So we do have those states, but of course, also with regard to those states, there are limitations. You talked about head of states immunity. I think with the development starting in Yerodia in 2002 and up to the draft, um, the latest draft of the International Law Commission on the question of immunity before foreign courts, I think uh, it's a rather quite established assumption that um, certain persons three types of persons, head of state, head of government, and the foreign minister would enjoy personal immunity before um, foreign domestic courts. So you already have a few persons, certain persons within the state apparatus that could not be prosecuted, at least for the time that they are holding office. It's another story when they're leaving office, whether there's a possibility there. And this limits the possibility for the crime of aggression, because the crime of aggression, different than the other crimes, is a leadership crime. And we are looking in particular for high-level persons as perpetrators, those that exercise control over or direct the political or military action of a state. And this will very often include these three persons, but it's not limited to them. So there's there's still potential perpetrators out there that uh, could fall within a universal jurisdiction clause. Something that was really interesting to me that I read in it, that you say this is a leadership crime. So this crime of aggression, if you want to go with that, this is not 
something that you could indict the general for or something like that as war crimes because it is the leadership that decides it and it's not one of those things where you as a as a foot soldier or even a general uh, are expected to know for yourself that you shouldn't be doing it kind of in, in not in the way that that they have that for war crimes and crimes against humanity we don't know exactly where the borderline is, so I would not categorically exclude generals because... Uh, you could be very high, yes, general, and yes. probably that could be do have some part of the Security say. Council that makes a decision. Yes. Yeah. But certainly the idea was that the foot soldier that might not be able to legally establish whether a use of force is lawful or unlawful under the chart of the United Nations should not be held responsible for then taking part in an aggressive war. Um, should we just do very quickly, Astrid, because I know that you have to get going. You mentioned it already briefly. The International Criminal Court also has aggression as one of its core crimes, but it has a very limited applicability. Yes. The crime of aggression falls within the jurisdiction of the ICC since 1998, or if you want, since 2002, when the statute entered into force. But we all are aware of the famous Article 5, Paragraph 2, um, which was part of the original compromise in Rome, that the ICC should not exercise jurisdiction over this crime until a provision was adopted that would define the crime and also define the conditions for the exercise of jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. So we had such a decision on a provision on the crime of aggression in 2010 in Kampala. The exercise of jurisdiction was then delayed another time until 2017. But in Kampala, on the one hand side, uh, the definition was adopted and the conditions for the exercise of jurisdiction do not follow the general jurisdictional regime of the International Criminal Court. In particular, when it comes to proprio motu investigations and state party referrals. And there we have rather broad carve-outs with regard to jurisdiction. On the one hand side, because when we talk about the crime of aggression, we always have these two layers of the state act of aggression, which is, which is kind of the basis for the crime, and then the level of individual criminal responsibility. So already at the state level, we have a carve out that the ICC would not have jurisdiction over acts of aggression committed by a non-state party. And uh, in the present discussion, we are talking about an act of aggression of a non-state party. So that would already be excluded on the basis of the state act that would be the basis for individual criminal responsibility. So basically, it's a no-no. So we can just kind of say, that's it. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's more to say on it, but basically, it's not going to happen. Yes. So we have the um, technical or potential possibility of a um, Security Council referral, but given the composition of the Security Council, um, with uh, one of the actors being a permanent member, um, this is very unrealistic, of course, as well. Great. I really appreciate um, the summary that you've managed to pop in to give us. I know that Juliet was also prepared to uh, to help us out with, with this part, but uh, thank you for taking your time away from investment arbitration. And uh, we'll see you again, hopefully on the podcast another time, Astrid. You're welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, sorry, Juliet, that we had just another guest gate crash a bit uh, the part, but to have uh, the expert on the crime of aggression was uh, too uh, tantalizing for us to say no to. Uh, so we already touched upon the ICC a little bit before, uh, and, and Astrid, of course, 
uh, touched upon it. The ICC has a preliminary examination into Ukraine, where it already concluded in, in 2020 that there's a reasonable basis to believe that a broad range of conduct constituting war crimes and crimes against humanity were committed. And they're talking here about Crimea and eastern Ukraine. There is, uh, There was late uh, at three in the morning from Bangladesh, a statement from the prosecutor uh, who is currently in Bangladesh dealing with the Myanmar case, a whole other thing, about Ukraine, where it was the classic ICC prosecutor thing, we have jurisdiction, we're looking at it, and, you know, be warned that, that we could prosecute people for it. Except not aggression. Except not aggression, yes. Yeah. So they talked about war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, it's very weird, this, this investigation is kind of in limbo. We have a preliminary examination. It was closed by Khan's predecessor, who said... You know, we have the stuff to go forward but and we, we will ask money. and we'll ask the judges, but we don't have any money. And then mm -hmm. I asked Khan about this in his first press conference. You know, what's going on with Ukraine? What's the update? And he basically said all the preliminary examination things are under review, uh, including this case. Uh, and we're still looking at it. So we don't know. Potentially, he could move to then request of the judges to make this a full blown investigation which would signal that he's reviewed it and he thinks there's a basis for it. That would be his next move. And then we'd have to wait for the judges to approve it. In any case, it's it's slow going. And the question is, even if it gets here, you know, as we move from international law before war and international law in war, there's different things that apply. And could do you think that it's already feasible now uh, for two days into a conflict to kind of start speculating about war crimes you know, have we seen anything already that on, on the face of it, a prima facie, as they like to say at the ICJ, would constitute war crimes? You know, you need things like massive indiscriminate shelling of civilians, deliberate targeting of hospitals, those kind of things. We see some reports, but, you know, have you seen anything yet where you could say, well, that's definitely going to come back in any application? Yeah, it's, it's, it's always difficult to sort of do this on the hop kind of assessment of the evidence. You find yourself watching these awful videos of bombs dropping on residential areas and thinking, oh, you know, is that, is that massively disproportionate? You know, it, it feels really kind of twisted to even have those thoughts running through your mind. But I mean, that is part of the, the, the necessity of this assessment. You know, does it reach the threshold of a war crime or is it just part and parcel of the horrors of of, of battle. Look, I think, you know, the way that this seems to be progressing, you know, I, I think I think there will be acts reaching the threshold of war crimes, certainly in terms of indiscriminate shelling of residential areas in, in the capital. Um, you know, we've already seen quite a lot of footage of damage that's been um, uh, occurring there. So whether or not there's this question, whether or not it's an intentional attack against the civilian population um, is, is always a question. There's also, you know, destroying property or seizing property where it's not demanded by the necessities of the conflict. There's been bridges that have been blown up and you can say that's part of the necessity of a conflict because they're trying to prevent tanks from moving around. But if you're destroying other types of property, residential areas and so on, there's no real justification for that. And of course, then damaging things like hospitals, um, you know, big no-no. So I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see, you know, evidence of, of war crimes. I think there's a couple of things to say about the role for the ICC here, one of which might be a bit controversial, but I think, you know, we have to remember that the Ukraine investigation is one of the only European investigations that the ICC 
has. <laughs> and and it's, it's quite closely tied to this question of the ICC's legitimacy. Does the ICC actually investigate war crimes and crimes against humanity in a, in a universal sense across the entire globe? Or does it protect certain actors and only investigate in states where it's not likely to get any pushback? Um, so this might be a good you know, opportunity for the, the prosecutor to actually say, OK, yeah, I recognise that from an institutional point of view, we probably need to step up here as well so that we don't keep getting accused of being just the you know, African criminal court of uh, uh, international justice. So there's that kind of an aside. But the other one that I wanted to raise as well is, is Astrid made an interesting point about the crime of aggression, that it's a leadership crime. So, you know, that is the big ticket item, you know, Putin on trial for the crime of aggression. You know, a lot of people would love to see that. When it comes to war crimes, the ICC has a really poor record of being able to try leaders for war crimes committed by foot soldiers. You know, it's it, you have a crime that's committed by, by a soldier, but it's hard to push that up the chain to sort of say this was, you know, it's very difficult to say Putin demanded that they destroy that particular building indiscriminately. There, there's a lot of chain of command that goes in between and I think that's one of the things people find a little bit disappointing about international criminal law is that it doesn't you can end up with prosecutions but the people that get prosecuted are not necessarily the the leaders of the action that led to the events that caused the war crimes to take place you know they're, they're just sort of soldiers on the ground it's not to say that they don't necessarily deserve to be prosecuted for what they did um, but it doesn't necessarily deter leaders like Putin uh, from, you know, invading and, and creating these situations where war crimes can occur, because from their point of view, they're quite, they're quite safe. So those are my little comments. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big disconnect in international law that we all think that it's to hold leaders responsible. And then when people get there, it's actually quite hard to convict those most responsible because they are generally not the people uh, with the boots in the ground and the blood literally on their hands. And so... This uh, it's a romanticized idea of international law, which I think we're also seeing now where you have everybody called this is against international law. Surely we must do something about it. And it's like, yeah, no, um, it doesn't really work like that. I wanted to um, just note another side thing that just uh, turned up today, which is the uh, United Kingdom's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, suddenly saying, let's create a whole special tribunal to put some people on trial for this. I mean, I thought we, we'd moved away from that since the 1990s, that you know, we recognise that that's not the way it works anymore. Is that at all likely, do you think, Julia? Not in the slightest. It's, I think these, you know, those, those special tribunals were an experiment while the creation of the International Criminal Court was underway. You know, it was a, it was a cry of, let's do something, we have to do something. But, you know, now we have the International Criminal Court, it's a permanent body, there's, there's no reason, um, you know, it has jurisdiction in respect of the Ukraine. Sure, it doesn't have jurisdiction in respect of, of, of Russia, but, you know, it has the ability to investigate, um, you know, a large swathe of the activities that might be going on here. So it's really, it's unnecessary um, and exorbitantly expensive to set up uh, such a tribunal and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure the Security Council set those tribunals up and I can't really see Russia going, yeah, let's set up a tribunal to investigate our, our crimes. So uh, I think I think Snowball's chance in hell would be my um, would be my assessment of that one. <laughs> so let's um, wrap up now with some broader points. Where do you want to go with this, Stephanie? I see the script, but I'm going to go off script. Which I gave you the opportunity by asking you that question. The one thing that I find 
rather amazing is that everybody is trying to justify using international law. And that is a really big change from the 1990s. The the fact that Putin is trying to raise protecting these people and trying to get a kind of cloak of legitimacy does say something about the place of kind of international law and these norms that have gotten that that, that the accountability is kind of a a question now, which it wasn't before. And, And at the same time, like that's the it's the very minimum good news we have about this. The rest of this is all just awful. But that for I was quite amazed to see Putin raise these points and make it an international law thing. And you can see kind of all the other international leaders piling up and mentioning international law. So in that sense, it does say something about the importance of that. So how are you feeling about your profession, Juliet? Do you feel the justified in uh, in having chosen international law as your speciality since everybody's invoking it? Uh, well, I do. I mean, I, you know, I come at this from the perspective of someone who engages with and applies the law. And I, I know that there's a lot of people who kind of doubt its its effectiveness. But, you know, my response to that is always, we don't, despair of the lack of effectiveness of, say, domestic criminal law when somebody is murdered. It's a tragedy, but we hope that the law will kick into force to prosecute that person and follow up and then reinforce this norm um, and the existence of this norm. What we have here are norms that are being broken, but the international community is actually banding together to reinforce the importance of these norms. You know, economic sanctions are being imposed, responses are being made, very, very vocal strongly worded responses are being made in all of the international fora. So we're seeing this 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 iterative process where uh, you know a norm is breached and then the community comes together to actually reinforce the importance of that norm. So in a in a sort of odd way, international law, despite lots of commentators kind of suggesting that it is powerless and can't do anything, is actually in the process of being reinforced at the moment of of a really significant breach. So, yeah, I mean, Marty Koskinemi, of course, you know, talks about international law being, you know, this system of argumentation, this, you know, discourse language and grammar for, for, for international relations. And this has been a really interesting, I guess, confirmation in a way of, of part of his, his theory that, you know, Russia and, and all of its counterparts are engaged in this system of international legal argumentation. It's the language that they use to justify their actions. You know, we don't know how much... Uh, international law actually has an effect on Putin's internal workings. We don't, we don't, I don't necessarily think he's going to bed going, oh gosh, I breached Article 2.4. I feel a bit bad about that. Uh, but I, but I, but I do think that he sees it as, a, as an avenue, as a pathway to legitimacy or to justification of legitimacy. You know, it's, it's, it's the language that we use now. And it's the only shared language that we really have in these kinds of situations. There's no other way to communicate about these. So, yeah, it's, it's a kind of funny situation to be in. Like, I, I do think that international law very much still has a place. You know, this is a severe challenge and, and breach, but it, it's not going to destroy uh, the international legal system. Wonderful. Thank you very much for offering up your uh, Friday night. Although uh, you told us that with small children, it's not that super exciting normally on <laughs> Friday night. But still, well, but still, you know. Still, still, some time to yourself might be nice. I mean, I'm I'm sure you've been asked a lot of questions about this, uh, I assume, or at least tweeted furiously about it, uh, as everybody uh, in international law seems to be doing. I I have, but talking about international law is one of my favourite things to do, so it's a great way to spend Friday night for me. (laughs) That's great. Well, thank you very much, and uh, hopefully we can have you uh, on again on another subject. Absolutely. 
Thank you. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development, and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com, and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.